0: G'day, I'm Oshii Ginsberg, and this is Wolfie who's currently chewing on a big candy cane. Is it tasty? It smells minty. I'm bringing you a bunch of episodes that were the biggest lessons for 2023 for me, the biggest lessons of the year. I love making this show. Thank you so much for your support for helping me make this show because I really enjoy learning something from all the people that I speak with. And the show's called Better Than Yesterday because that is something that I really work at. It's hard sometimes. It's it's really hard sometimes, but the work is always worth it. The lessons that I've learned from making the show in 2023 have been fantastic. And this episode today, look, it contains so much wisdom. It could be a podcast unto itself. It's the conversation I had with psychologist and addiction treatment expert, Diane Young. Because addiction is something which can be misunderstood to a lot of people who've never experienced it. A way, I guess, into seeing addiction from another angle comes from a former podcast guest, Johan Hari who uh, told me that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Uh, and speaking from my own experience of addiction, for me, I, I didn't drink because I had a hard-earned thirst. I drank because the beer put some space between me and uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. I liked the taste because that taste meant that in a few seconds, I'd have tiny little relief from the swirling nasties that inhabited my head all the time. And it would never make those thoughts and feelings go away entirely as is often the case, I, I just upped the dosage of whatever it was that I was. And I believe it was the great philosopher Axel Rose who said, I used to do a little, but the little wouldn't do it, so the little got more and more. I just keep trying to get a little better, just a little better than before. He was talking about something else entirely, um, but uh, it still applies. It applies to anything that we put between ourselves and a thought or a feeling or a situation, which is difficult Dad, for us. Dad, go up go up.
1: I I saw a W.
0: You saw a W? Up there. Yeah, yeah. There's another W coming. Oh, Oh, yeah. yeah. Because I'm reading an cue because I can't remember this stuff very well. But Wolf knows W because that's the first letter in your name, isn't it? Yep. It applies to anything that we put between ourselves and a thought or a feeling or a situation, which is difficult for us rather than dealing with that thought or feeling or situation. Addiction does not discriminate. It doesn't care if you've got all the money in the world or if you're the best family on the planet and wonderfully... Dad, I'm finished. You finished what? Finished. Leading. I all right. They... Stay with me or are you going to go away now? I will you. All right. You want to say bye to everybody? Bye. Thanks. And I was very grateful. See you later. And don't forget to subscribe. Did you say don't forget to subscribe? What? What? Where do you learn that from? From well, Roly Poly. Roly Poly. Who says don't forget to subscribe? Daycare? Who says don't forget to describe at daycare? Sometimes. Sometimes that silly dude does it? Ah, on the videos. All right, see you, buddy. See you, Dad. All right. <laughs> well, what was I talking about? Oh, yeah, addiction. <laughs> doesn't matter where you're from. Doesn't matter if you're from the famous, most rich, most wealthy family in the world. Doesn't matter. It doesn't discriminate. Uh, but wonderfully, there's a lot of help. There's actually a way to live without needing those habits, without needing those processes, those substances. There's treatment. The treatment does take time, it takes hope, and it, it takes a commitment to have a better life and to live a better life. And it's never something that need be done alone. I couldn't get sober off my own will, off my own thoughts or off my own intentions. I needed other people's ideas and guidance to help me. And I still need other people's ideas and guidance, because I am not because I'm helpless. Not because I'm helpless, but it's like I've spent my whole life hopping on one leg, just getting along from here to there, hopping on one leg, and then I look to my side and I see a, a you know, a, a gloriously in-love couple ballroom dancing their way from here to there like Fred and Ginger. Now, I don't know how to do that. So I'll go and find a ballroom dance teacher to, to show me how to do that, and then practice, 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 practice. And that's pretty much how I see people in my life, like psychologists or psychiatrists, mentors, sponsors, you name it. And my guest today is a person just like that. Diane Young is a psychologist and a director and a clinical supervisor at South Pacific Private on Sydney's northern beaches, easily the leading addiction treatment center in Australia. And it's a fantastic conversation. And i got so many lessons from this, I'm really glad I could share it with you today. Enjoy this conversation with Diane Young. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss.
1: A little boy and his mother went to the doctor and she couldn't get someone to look after the little boy. So he got a copy of the National Geographic magazine. He ripped out a picture of the world and he ripped it up into little pieces and he gave it to the boy and he said, here we are, can you see if you can put this together? And within about 15 minutes, the kid came over and he gave him this duck thing, the, the piece of paper with the world thing. And the doctor said, and the mother he looked at the mother and he said to the boy, how did you do that? That's amazing, you did that so quickly. And the little boy turned it over and he said, I put them, there was a photo of the face of a man on the other side. He said, I put the man back together and he said the world looked all right. Ah! Ah. And I thought, that's what we're doing. What do I need to do for myself? And then my lens changes.
0: That is the esteemed psychologist, Diane Young. This is Osher Ginsberg, better than yesterday. Welcome. Thanks for being a part of the show. This is Better Than Yesterday. Uh, it is a show that is here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday. We've been here since 2013, Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays. Basically, this show is just, through a conversation, going to give you, and me, tools and ideas to help you make your day-to-day better than yesterday. I'm grateful you give you a part of the show. I'm Osha Ginsberg. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a, what am I this morning, a board game player, a backyard weightlifter, I'm someone who's fantasizing about building a home sauna, not that we can afford it. Uh, I'm a backyard dog poop picker-upper, and I'm sober, because <laughs> that's pertinent for our conversation today. Hang on, there's a thing on my phone, I can tell you. I'm thir- And as of this recording today, I'm 13 years, one month, and 23 days sober. <laughs> and I'm grateful you're here today. Uh, now, really quickly, we've got two live shows coming up. The Sydney comedy festival show is happening on the 19th of May at the factory theater. And then there's another show we're doing at the Newcastle comedy festival on the 3rd of June. The show we're doing is NNN. It's the satirical news show that we're building. We're building a TV show uh, and you are, you could be a part of it. And both the shows we're doing are really big, deal because the May 19th one, that's the one that the TV bosses are coming to. So if you've ever watched a teen movie where the band rehearses all summer long and they do one audition to try to get the record contract, well, that's the the show. May 19th, that's the one. That's the big moment in our kind of pitch story. Uh, But the show on June 3rd, well, that's also really important because that's the one that we will film. uh, We'll film the show one more time because if there's any notes that the people we pitched it to have, we'll be able to put those into play and adjust the show a little bit on the 3rd of June so we can film it again. And then when I say, see, you know, this is how it works if we do that, or this is what works. Like, yeah, it's two really big steps on the path to us getting this show to be on television. So uh, they're two really big days for us, it would be supreme if you come to be a part of it, you can get tickets in the show notes to both those gigs. Now let's talk about addiction. Addiction is something which can be quite misunderstood, certainly to people who have never experienced it. A way in, I guess, to seeing addiction from another angle comes from my former podcast guest, Johan Hari, who told me that the opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. Now, speaking uh, from my own experience of addiction, for me, I didn't drink because I had a hard-earned thirst. I drank because beer, for me it was beer, beer put some space between me and uncomfortable thoughts and feelings. Now, I liked the taste of it because that taste meant that in a couple of seconds I might have just a little bit of relief from these swirling thoughts and nasties that were inhabiting my skull every second of the day. But it would never make those thoughts or those feelings completely go away. And as is often the case, I had to up the dosage of the drug that I was using. In my case, that drug was alcohol. Because, and I quote the great philosopher W. Axel Rose here, I used to do a little, but the little wouldn't do it, so the little got more and more. I just keep trying to get a little better, just a little better than before. Now, Axel Rose was singing about heroin in that song. The song's called Mr. Brownstone. But it applies. It applies for me. That's exactly what was happening. The little wouldn't do it, so the little got more and more. I just kept trying to get a little better. Now, for me, the problem was... Anything that I was putting between myself and a thought, feeling, or situation which was difficult for me, that became my solution to the thought, feeling, or situation that was difficult. Rather than doing something about the thought, feeling, or situation, taking some action. And that's where I got into trouble. Addiction does not discriminate. Addiction doesn't care if you've got all the money in the world, doesn't care if you're from the best family on the planet, doesn't care at all how your upbringing was, doesn't care. Wonderfully, Wonderfully and mercifully, there is help. There is a way to live without needing these habits, these processes, these substances. Treatment of addiction does take time, it takes hope, it takes commitment, and it takes support, but a better life is absolutely possible. And it's something that does not need to be done alone. In my experience, I could not get sober off my own will, my thoughts, or my intentions. It just didn't work. I actually needed other people's ideas and other people's guidance. And I still use other people's ideas and other people's guidance, uh, not because I'm helpless and I'm, you know, I, I need somebody to do everything for me. Not at all. But it's almost like I've spent my entire life hopping on one leg alone to try to get from here to there. That's how I'm. I'm moving and I'm getting from here to there, but I'm doing it on one leg and I'm doing it by myself. And I look to my side and I see a gloriously in love couple ballroom dancing their way from here to there, like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, gracefully full of just joy and love and moving just effortlessly and just spreading just joy by the way they're just being in the universe. And I go, wow, crikey, I want to know how to do that. I'm going to learn how to do that. I've no idea how to do that. So I'm going to find someone who can teach me how to do that. And I'm going to practice, 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 practice. So I'll go off and find a ballroom dancing instructor and bloody work until I can get close to doing what they're doing. And that's it though. That's all it is. That's how I see my interactions with people like a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a mentor or a sponsor or whatever that person is for you. My guest today, there's someone who does that sort of thing for a job. Diane Young is a psychologist and a director and clinical supervisor at South Pacific Private, which is on Sydney's Northern Beaches. South Pacific Private is Australia's leading treatment centre for addiction, trauma, and mental health conditions such as depression and anxiety. For 30 years, uh, they've been at the forefront of addiction and mental health treatment in Australia, and the team there... They've helped over 13,000 people and their families start their recovery journey and and find freedom. They've been around since 1993. They were the first treatment center equipped to treat addiction, trauma, and mental health conditions in parallel, and to treat them with an integrated holistic program that incorporates partners, friends, family. It is an extraordinary treatment program. And as you'll hear me speak to Diane, I've met a couple of people that have come out of there and it's astonishing what they have achieved, but you know, results may vary. (laughs) So if you or someone you care about is struggling, you can actually take a free online self-assessment at southpacificprivate.com.au. You could also reach out to their team on one 63 332 And you can just find out more by visiting their website, southpacificprivate.com.au, or find them on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. I really hope that you enjoy connecting with Diane Young. Diane, uh, thank you so much for speaking with me today. I'm extraordinarily grateful to to chat with you today. Can you tell us? Um, can you tell us where you are right now?
1: Uh, well, at this moment, I'm sitting in uh, in the northern beaches of Sydney in South Pacific Private Hospital, um, and delighted to be invited to talk to you today. <laughs>
0: well, I, I'm very happy to speak with you because every now and again, I get to have a pretty great conversation about sobriety. Uh, mm. I am. I can even tell you because I've got an app now. I I, I used to oh, just it. Yeah.
1: how many days. <laughs>
0: uh, I don't know. I can't tell you how many days, but it's thirteen years, one month, and five. Very so, good. So, so there what, you go.
1: So what do you have your sobriety date sort of tattooed on your mind?
0: Oh yeah, fourteenth of March, twenty ten. Beautiful. I was lucky enough to get sober in America, which has a very different relationship with alcohol. Yeah. To Australia. And there's a joke among actors in in America. I'm not an actor, but I hung out with enough of them. The, yeah. joke, the joke among actors in LA is you don't realise you've got a drinking problem until you leave Australia.
1: <laughs> yeah, that'd be right. Because- well, we are known for our, uh, you know- our partying ways, aren't we in Australia?
0: Why? Is it is it partying, or is it uh, <laughs> don't really have any other cultural way to deal with discomfort? Well,
1: um, that's a very good point you make. You know, a very good point.
0: Don't have yeah. any other way to deal with the shame of you know yes. what we've done to be in yeah. this country and how yeah. to carry that with us, and you yeah. know, my, I don't know. So I got very lucky to get sober in a country at the time. It's very different in Australia now, thankfully. But mm-hmm. I got lucky to get sober in a country that has a different relationship to sobriety and instead of, yeah. oh, you quitter, it was like, mate, good for you. Yeah. yeah. So the when I started, you know, first coming back to Australia after I got sober, I started hearing about this place on the northern beaches of Sydney. It's a place called South Pacific Private, which is a um, it's a private hospital that specializes in dual diagnosis, I think you'd call it. Um yeah. so addiction that is coupled with a more complicated mental health cool. situation. Mm-hmm. And then I met somebody who had come from there, oh, and yeah. this is a, a patient who had a um, methamphetamine addiction, which is an absolute terrible, super yeah. scary, red slippery slide of wet and wild, of very yeah. very difficult to get out of, mm. if not impossible, and changes your brain forever. And mm-hmm. when I saw that person and what I knew about their using before and afterwards, I'm like, well, they must be doing some pretty good stuff there. Mm. <laughs> so when the opportunity to speak to you came up, I was like, "I'm all about it." Because I, well, that's great. The man that guides me on my sobriety, journey, he yes. has a job very similar to yours uh-huh. in the US. Okay. Uh, he's he's still that man for me, even though I live uh-huh. in a different country here now. So yeah. he has worked in the um, rehabilitation and the treatment sector in the states, and yeah. unfortunately, there because it's all done through private health insurance there's a lot of bad actors like terribly bad actors and some horrible horrible things that have gone on to exploit that system okay Uh, and i know we're very lucky to have that very differently here but Mm. there's something that's different about what you guys do and you know any parent whose child is in trouble would do anything and pay any amount of money to save their Mm. life
1: Mm.
0: and unfortunately you know that can get exploited so, of course, to speak with someone who works at a centre that has such integrity is is, is actually pretty, yeah. pretty great. How did you How did you come to addiction <laughs> when when it, when it comes to you know your work in psychology?
1: Uh, well, look, you know, I have a history of uh, addiction myself, and I too ah. have been sober a very long time. You know, I came to it a number of years ago now, after having a quite successful um, bi- uh, publishing business and. Um, I'm not 25 anymore, Osha. And, uh, you know, 66, not out, looking fabulous, full of life, ready to, you know, really get into the second part of my life. But uh, I decided I'd do a bit of study because I was interested and uh, it was the first time I'd had some time to do that. And I actually thought I'd go into semi-retirement, Osha, and I thought I'll see clients for a couple of days a week and it'll be all, you know, well, it's bigger than I can keep going with. And I think It's it's coming together with, well, you know, do I like the term lived experience? Not particularly. How can you have the experience if you're not living? But the lived experience, I suppose, and then the study. But I'm uh, very passionate about it because I've seen the difference that it can make in people's lives. I often say to people in South Pacific when they're, uh, I do a lecture on on the model of developmental immaturity, which is what underpins everything we do at South Pacific, and I'm down here one week a month in the supervising, supervising role now. But for many years, I did their childhood trauma program, which is called Changes. So, you know, I often say to them, you know, we've got two things, you know, how many people are in here for addiction, three quarters of the room, put their hand up, and how many for mood disorder, will, you know, again. And um, so... Don't be confused. If you have childhood trauma, you need to deal with that therapeutically over here, right? And if you have addiction, then you need to get into abstinence-based recovery here. And you need the, you know, the mentor, the sponsor, whatever you want to call them, the guiding light in your life to keep you on track. Because once we're, once we're addicted, we can never become unaddicted. You know, that's like being pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not. You don't get a choice to go. Well, I'm an addict now, and if I stop, then I'll be all right. In five years, I can pick up and I'll handle it. You won't. Uh-huh. You know that. I know that. So, oh. um,
0: Sorry, I've just got flashbacks of how many people. Because <laughs> I've, I've been at it for a while now. How many people yeah. I've seen go, oh, I'll be sweet, and then you don't see them for a while, and then two years no. come past, and then you see them again, and... You know, the house and the husband or the wife and the kids gone. and it's all gone. Yeah.
1: I saw a guy uh, on Sunday night I was at a meeting and I saw a guy, a young man five he's going now, now five years ago I worked with him here at South Pacific. Yeah. And he was all over it. And he was in his mid twenties then. He's now just turned thirty. He's just come back into recovery. Oh man. And he went Wild ride, die. Wild ride. I'm lucky <laughs> yeah. I survived it. And I said, "You are." And I said, I, don't, "I hope you're not going back out there again." He went, "Absolutely not." But you yeah. know, it took it. night you know, it takes what it takes. Sometimes, Osha, you know that.
0: I had those moments before I. Finally got into the rooms, as they say. You know, I yeah. tried. I tried to stop many times. I thought I'd, mm. I'd be sweet if I just took a couple yeah. of weeks or a couple months. I reckon I got ten yeah. weeks up at one point, and I thought wow. that was yeah, I'd be fine yeah. now. And uh, yeah. like within, within <laughs> like one night, it was. Four or five beers the next night. It was one and a half six packs and a bottle of red. And you know, three days later, I'm in a toilet cubicle, and it's like, yeah, that didn't take long. No, <laughs> that's, <laughs> right. Like, that's right. That's right. It was like as if I'd never had those ten weeks, you mm. know. Then, it, mm. it, yeah, it it took it took a while. But mm. it it is. It, to, talk to me about the you know the the thing that many people may not think about is when they see. And addicts. And I, I spoke with someone just the other day who and I was quite high functioning. Mm. You know, if you if you're holding down a job or you've got a family yes. and you're drinking and using, people think, well, they can't be an addict because everything's mm. together. They they couple mm. addict with having lost everything. That is literally the last step. That is the you're in the ambulance after the heart attack. You yeah. know? <laughs> but it is the years leading up to that where yes. everything's slowly falling apart, like a piece of yeah. sugar underwater. You know. Yeah. Um, talk talk to me about the idea of what what addiction can look like on the outside. What we what we what we think we're looking at versus what we're actually looking
1: at. Well, yeah. I mean, look. You know, as you say, people often think, "Well, I've got the you know the partner, the the career, you know, the kids, whatever you know, whatever persuasion they are." I'm all right, but it's actually, it's. and I often say this to clients, it's not about how much you drink or how often you drink, it's the effect it has on you. Mm. And if you've got the people in your life close to you starting to get in your ear about how much you're drinking and what a pain in the neck you are to live with, you've got to pay attention to that. There is also that since, and you said it earlier, how much of what I'm doing and how much of what I'm drinking or drugging, say, or for that matter, Osha, gambling, using corn or sex, food, you know, there's a whole raft of them. Yes, shopping, yes. Work addiction's another one, you know. Gaming, that's a big one now. So what are we using? Why are we using those things? And is it to cover the distress we feel inside? How distressed do we feel? And as you quite rightly say, you can know that you're in trouble and make a decision to stop. But if you're not actually supported in that decision with other other people, professionals, like-minded people, you're out there by yourself. One of the things I think about people with addiction is they live with a deep sense of uh, loneliness and despair. Now, some of that's related to trauma, and I know we'll come to that, but some of it's just because I'm so ashamed. I live with so much shame about what I do and what I don't talk about. Mm. You know, it's that old concept of my secrets will keep me sick. <sighs> and you know as well as I do that when we get into recovery, we don't have secrets anymore.
0: Oh, no. And it's well, very, we try
1: not to anyway, Osh.
0: That's a very important part of it keeping mm. the co- keeping the cupboard clean is a very yeah. important variant. Mm. That first clean out, though, oof, that's a tough one. Uh, <laughs> when you're talking about and I, you know, I've 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 written about this in my book, so I'm happy to speak about it. You know, there yeah, was yeah. there was a time when I would like not only be day drinking, I'd be Day drinking while sim- simultaneously playing two separate tables of internet poker, gambling a yeah. hundred hundreds of dollars away every yeah. hour, while yeah, yeah. masturbating to increasingly intense <laughs> internet pornography. On because I had this is like mid two so thousands, I had two monitors. I was quite fancy. And yeah. if you called me and said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm just hanging out at home." Yeah, and this is a Tuesday, yeah. you know, yeah. at two yeah. p.m. And that yeah. was that was more days than it wasn't. Wow, and I was. It was completely normal for me to do that. Mm-hmm. And only now, when I look at it, it's like I was putting so much effort into stimulating. <laughs> sorry for the. Yeah. No, uh, I don't know.
1: Yeah. You know, yeah.
0: Uh, stimulating the bits of my brain to keep it busy so I didn't have to deal with the discomfort. Can we talk a bit about, and that's the things, things are called avoidant behaviors, because that's the other thing, uh, Diane. I had memorized two separate 16 digit credit card numbers and all the CC. So if I saw something on the internet that I wanted to buy, I'd go Brrr, and buy it yeah. like that, you yeah. know? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. um, I, I had a big TV job and the money didn't stop. So I was, yeah. you know, I was in a bit of trouble there because there yeah, wasn't yeah, that, yeah. that kind of flaw of, uh, well, you're out of home now. Um, can we talk a little bit about? of how the different forms that avoidant behaviour takes and, you know, how it might start, for example?
1: Yeah, okay. So I think that it generally starts because we're feeling discomfort in ourselves or where we find ourselves in our life. It's like I didn't think I'd be here at 25 or I didn't think I'd be here at 18 or I didn't think I'd be here at 35 or whatever. The age is irrelevant and, in fact, as you know, it starts a whole lot younger now because my, people do have access to internet and all sorts of things. I mean, the, the porn and sex addiction, it... it as a general rule, the stats are that it starts at about you know somewhere between eight and fourteen. That's very young. Now, we're going to use all of those things to soothe ourselves because we're in discomfort. yeah, and I'm going to suggest to you that some of it comes from the fact that we've been raised in families where we weren't able to talk about anything that was in any way distressing. yeah, that we're, and and ne- none of this ever Osh, used to blame our parents because, of the people I've worked with, their parents were really doing as well as they could from where they came from. Yeah. I have worked with people where the parents deliberately tried to harm the child, but that's a small percentage. Yeah. As a general rule, they're really doing their best. But if we've got nowhere to go, if we're not given any uh, way to articulate our emotions and how we feel about what's happening in in our lives, we're going to push it down and push it down and push it down. Now... There's only eight emotions, Osha. We think there's a whole lot more, but there's actually only eight. We call them different things. Like we call anger frustration or we call love warmth. You know, we call sadness pain. So there's eight emotions. Now, if we're not taught what they are and if we're able to navigate our emotions when we have them, we will get the gift of the emotion. For example, Anger is a good one. So if I'm angry about something, and I'm and I'm just meaning, you know, I'm irritated. Something's happened. The gift of anger is strength. I get something done. I ca- I can't be angry and lay on the lounge, right? I'm up and I'm into action. But if I stuff my anger and I continue to stuff it, and you will have met people, I've met many who don't feel safe expressing their anger because it was never allowed when they were children. Yeah stuff it will come out sideways as rage now people will often say to me um not only men but a lot of men i'm you know i'm having one of these rage attacks right like it's about the guy who cut me off in the traffic or the woman who took my parking spot or whatever it is it's a trauma response yeah the same way panic attacks are so, I think if we're living with that level of distress, we will start to use some sort of substance or some sort of behaviour to soothe it, and look around the world, look around Sydney, for example. We're living in a highly stressed environment right now. Like you'd be you'd be a bit numb if you weren't feeling something.
0: I couldn't believe it when I saw this morning that uh, the commission, that the the actual people who are in charge of doing it, Put into place recommended the job seeker be raised by 38%, yes. which is not two, not five, no, no. 38%. Yeah, and they looked yeah. at that and went, nope. And if the, if, the, if the cause of many of our social problems and certainly, you know, crime and, you know, DV yeah. and things like yeah. this is, is financial <laughs> hardship, w- what are you thinking? Yeah, You know, it's not like people – I know that you have this kind of neoliberal idea of like, well, if I give them free money, they won't be incentivized to work. I've been (laughs) on the dole twice. There's nothing more absolutely humiliating that's happened in my life Mm. than, you know – well, hang on, there was two other things. But these particular things were, uh, you know, to be begging for money for the government so I could live. And I got off that as quick as I could so I could have some goddamn dignity. Yeah, And to think that people want to take that stuff, you know, uh, or, you know, it's – and – You you, you know, then the idea of like, uh, I'll take that doll money and drink it. Well, part of me is like, I can get that. I can understand why you'd want to use that for drugs and alcohol to deal with the shame of, I live in this shit house and I can't feed my family and I can't get a job. And I, you know, I understand that. I don't think it's a good idea, but I get it. And so that took us to one side, but it just... It's it's not a compassionate you know it's not a compassionate model but that does you know we'll get to that we'll get to a treatment model <laughs> for you know of, of you know drugs and alcohol uh, but let's chat because we, we touched on trauma let's chat a bit about that because I certainly remember uh, early on I reckon it was about fourteen I think I well, know it was fifteen I just finished my lawn. it was a hot summer's day I think my uncle had been around the day before so he had some beers in the fridge and I wow. I have never been more thirsty and I would never had my thirst quenched quite like that. And yeah. uh, beer had been disgusting up until that point. And I not only did this thing, was it amazing, but all that fear and anxiety and I'm fat and I'm a loser and all that stuff just went away with a mouthful of this liquid. I was like, well, mm. that's the magic potion. I'm Asterix the Gaul. This is incredible. <laughs> yes. And away we were. Away yeah. we went. And that was it. And
1: you, were, and you were looking for the second one, I imagine, were you? <sighs>
0: <laughs> Two is very low on the number of how many I thought I'd need to make it finally stop. Yes. I, it never did. No matter how much I drank, I never got to where all that stuff actually went away, but I yeah, yeah. always had this false belief that if I just drank enough of it, all those yeah. fears and pains and things would go away. So, you know, I can definitely understand how being with discomfort and the uncomfortable feelings or the shame or the trauma or childhood trauma or whatever it is that I was dealing with, mm. Mm. that behaviour made it stop. For, well, mm. turn it down a little bit. How, how, like, now, what's different about me to other people that might have had that beer and then can drink normally? What's different about me to other like normies as, as, as they're called?
1: Well, I think you've got a physiological, different makeup to somebody who, you know somebody else will have the beer like another 14 year old could have easily had the beer and going, "Oh, that's all right. I'd rather have a Coke, thanks." Yeah, because they don't get the same effect. It doesn't affect their brain the same way it affects yours. Right, and I think if you and you said, um, you know, I'm thinking, you know, I'm a fat, I'm a loser, I'm da 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 da. da, You know, so you've got a whole internal dialogue that I'm going to make up up until that moment when you had that first bid had never shut up. Nope. So it was very. There's a lot of chatter going on up there. Mm-hmm. And then you have the beer, and it kind of tones it down. You have another one, tones yeah. it down, tones it down. You know, I often say about my own drinking and using. You know, I, I didn't have to th- listen to myself when I was out of it. Yeah. And as soon as I started trying to try and get well, or, or you know, you know, at least not use so much, it got very loud again. I oh, because they'd be like, it. we've
0: been quiet for a day and a half. That's right, shit. Like, exactly. We've got a lot to yeah. catch up on, dude. That's <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> that
1: the well, and I do think there's that sense, you know, I've sat in meetings where in my early years where someone would be up the front going, oh, you know, I've had a terrible day, you know, I've got like three people talking in my head and I'd be sitting up the back with the dark glasses on and my arms folded thinking to myself, only three.
2: Yeah. Like <laughs> i got a whole chorus up there, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> I do
1: think our internal dialogue, and that's what I meant about, if we're up here living and chatting and it's, it's all going on and we're not able to access anything in here, in our, you know, our feelings are in our body. Yeah, And that sense of when I talked earlier about that, uh, you know, my belief that addict addicts live with enormous isolation and despair, it's in here. We yeah. don't want to go there. It's too painful. No one's yeah. taught us how to navigate that. So we stay up here. And it's hectic.
0: Yeah. And it, it doesn't shut up. What is it that essentially can qualify... As, as trauma, particularly childhood trauma?
1: Well, look, in our world, uh, we would say childhood trauma is anything less than nurturing. Now, that's a very big statement I appreciate, mm. but, you know, there's been adverse childhood experiences, reports done, there's all sorts of things. So we put it in the, in the realm of anything that was uh, physically, mentally, emotionally, sexually, socially, financially, uh, damaging to you as a child. And as I say, it isn't about blaming the parents, what it is about talking about what happened to me, you know, and you know, so I'm sure you've done a bit of therapy. Also. You know, I just, it's like, this is what happened to me and about that I feel this, but it's not just telling the story. You've got to access how you felt about it at the time because it's all kind of trapped in there. Yeah, You know, when you're 14 and you're given the first beer or whatever whatever happened before 14 is probably more significant. You know, it's all in here. Yeah, We need to actually unpack it. So trauma for me, there's... Oh, big T trauma, one-off events as adults, you know, death yeah. in the family, car accidents, chronic illness can be very traumatic for people. But the other trauma that I'm talking about, I fundamentally talk about a lot is the childhood trauma. And that can be small events, which we don't put down as being particularly impactful on us because we're kids. I mean, the best way I can describe it is this. If I get a, 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 let's say I've got a father who's screaming at me and he does it quite regularly, let's just say that. It's a simple, I as a child am looking at my father screaming at me for doing something that was probably not that big a deal. Like most of it's not Mm life-threatening. I don't say you're out of control, which is what he is. What I say is I have made my father so angry. He is screaming at me. I am wrong or I am bad or I don't matter or something. So I'm gonna take it on me. You know, that classic line of people who are, you know, abusing their children don't love their parents less, they love themselves less. So we as children then grow up into our with our sense of neglect and abandonment and we don't know how to do deal with anything.
0: I uh I I am on the edge of tears hearing you say that. Mm. It's, uh, that's extraordinary to, fuck man, before Georgia came into my life, I could have heard that. I could have watched mm. any ad, any movie where, you know, anything, I was fine. The moment Georgia mm. came into my life, blubbering mess, yeah. you know, and, you know, we've got two kids now and like listening yeah. to you say that I'm, um, of yeah. course, I'm picturing, you know, little Wolfie or Georgia and I'm, you know, hearing mm. you describe that internal monologue. And I'm like, oh mm. my gosh, no mm. parent wants to be that. No parent wants to be that. They don't, you know. Mm. Nobody wants to have that. Their child no. do that. And if they, you, no. if you do, you're a fucking psychopath. But you know, well, that's right. you know. But you're no in parent the 1%, wants to. Like, yeah.
2: Nobody yeah, wants absolutely. to be that.
0: And that's no. you know. Uh, but mm. if if you don't know any better, that's the other thing. You might not. You might just be carrying on in a pattern of behaviour that your parents did, and you don't realise that. And that's also a real a real trick. What mm. are some signs that, say, for example. You know, there's people in a life that are dealing with trauma, aside from like, oh, there's a person in my life who when they drink, it's just, you know, off to the races.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, I, I think uh, often it can, you know, it can go under the radar for a while and then they'll, they'll and, and and I'm talking about adults now, um, anyone over the age age of eighteen, and something happens in their life, and it may be something which appears just like a normal life event, a death Mm -hmm. of a family member or an accident or some car accident or something. And it will often trigger you back into something old. Now, if you're not aware that that childhood, those childhood experiences have impacted you very deeply, you will suddenly start to do things like you'll become very fatigued, Mm -hmm. even though you're sleeping, or you'll have nightmares, you'll have flashbacks. uh, There'll be a lot of that sort of emotion, you know, I mean, often uh, I had a man see me recently and he said to me, you know, successful, got the suit, the whole nine yards, right? He said, I went to Woolies. Uh, my wife asked me to pick up some stuff from Woolworths the other day. He said, I walked into Woolies. I was fine. He said, I was standing in front of the tomatoes trying to decide what tomatoes to buy. He said, I burst into tears. I went, oh, okay. Do you cry very often? He said, I haven't cried in 30 years. You know, and so we started to unpack. So there can be things like that that suddenly the there's something that's starting to change about the way we do life or how we feel about yeah. Yourself. Or unusually things like that where you're suddenly crying, you know, you're watching a movie, you never cry at a movie, and suddenly you're crying at a movie that's not a particularly sad movie. The other thing I wanted to say about children also is a lot of people come into recovery or come in to look at their, Mental health or deal with them, the things that are troubling them, because their children have got to an age where they're starting to say, Dad, I don't want you to keep yelling at me, or Dad, why are you so unhappy? And in fact, when I was doing the lecture on Monday, I actually said, You know, I know that you're all sitting here, like it's a 54 bed hospital, right? So I said, I know you're all sitting here deciding, you know, wondering about all this stuff I've been talking about, but how many of you have children? A lot of them. And I said, And I bet all of you have been sitting there thinking, Oh my God, I've been a disaster of a parent. Don't focus on what you're doing to your children. Focus on your own childhood. Clean that up and it'll flow on to your, how you parent, you know? (sighs) So they do, a lot of people come in for their children.
0: Yeah, 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 because I guess that's the, ultimately, what is it, when the the pain and the fear of changing becomes less painful and less frightening than the fear of staying the same. Staying the same, yes.
1: And it's the liberator right? because it doesn't feel great at the time, but the yeah. liberator is that you get the the impetus to do whatever it takes yeah. to get well. How and can things like well?
0: you mentioned the tomatoes and yeah, yeah. which leads <laughs> me there's a. There's a I when I wrote wrote a book I did a live show yep. based on the book I'm a terrible actor so I sang songs to get me through the really <laughs> tricky parts like yes. I, I sang a song about the the internet porn uh, earlier okay. uh, I sang a song about that because I didn't want to really talk about it on stage uh, but, I also sang a song about um, an incident that happened in the pool and yep. so I sang the song it sounded like a Patsy Bisco song it was pretty mm. pretty grim uh, but yeah. it was funny but it was it was grim mm. and as a friend of mine who saw that and they were probably in their late 20s at the time yes and i sang this song on stage and yeah. as they sat there in the audience suddenly remembered that at the age of like between the ages of 11 and 13 or something yeah this horrible 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 thing happened to them right and they yes. hadn't remem- it had it, completely yes. been blocked Yep. And it set off this cascade of, yeah. you know, what was ultimately a year of, of pretty uncomfortable stuff before yeah, their partner said, yeah. you need to go to hospital. Yeah. Um, why does that happen? Why do things, why does trauma sometimes get completely blacked out? And if someone's listening to this going, well, I don't have trauma, Like, why Why does
1: it vanish? Well, I guess it's the way the brain works though, So, you know, the biggest part of the brain just very simply and i don't get into a big story about you know prefrontal cortex now cortex it's the regulator you know get up have breakfast do blah 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 blah, the things of life right now if you're a child who's experiencing uh, quite a bit of abuse abandonment neglect enmeshment that's the other one uh whatever that looks like for you you will spend quite a bit of time in the next part of brain which is fight or flight and you'll often hear from children i was one of these kids who'd I wouldn't know what I was coming home to because my mum was a chronic alcoholic and um, she's long past now and never got sober. So I, as I was getting closer to the door, I would know. I could tell by the, you know, the smell, whatever, I knew. So I'm yeah. on fight or flight a lot of the time in my life. And because I'm on fight or flight, we're not meant to stay there. Like mm. it's they were designed for, you know, if there's a, a critical incident happening and you think get out of the way or or get in and help, you know, something like that. right? Yeah. But, of course, if you spend a lot of your time in fight or flight, you know, you're the kid at school who doesn't quite fit in because you haven't got the right clothes, whatever, you will go back to the next part of the brain, which is freeze. Now, when we freeze, we freeze physically, mentally, emotionally and yeah. spiritually, and we'll spend a lot of time there. And when we freeze, we'll often repress a memory. And yeah. the brain does it to protect us because what's happening to us is so horrific. And and when I'm saying horrific and I'm using that word, I'm not meaning that it necessarily has to be childhood sexual abuse, although it may be. It may be just mum and dad are consistently fighting and I'm terrified and under the bed, mm-hmm. you know. So it's frightening to me. So I'm in a freeze state. So I repress the memory. Some years later, and I and I only know this because it has happened to me many, many, many years into my recovery. I had a memory come back at a probably inopportune moment as I was out on a date Mm. with a man, and he said something, asked me something about myself, and for some reason, I don't know what possessed me to tell him this terrible story, which I won't tell you because it is a terrible story. And he sort of spent most of the lunch with his fork like this, going, you know, with his mouth open. Needless to say, he didn't ask me out in a second date. But what happened was that day, that memory came back to me. Now, I had done a lot of work. I'd been in therapy. I'd been in 12-step. I'd done fourth and fifth steps, you name it. Mm. I'd never remembered it. Why that day in that situation, I have no idea. Yeah. It took me to five, you know, because I run with some pretty solid people. It took me to the fifth telling of the story before I started to sob about it. Wow. So, the interesting thing for me was, your friend heard you tell a sing a song about your internet and porn addiction. I've heard stories before where people, because we do a lot of group work at South Pacific, where you know people have been sitting in group and listening to somebody else do a timeline or yeah. first step or something, and something's come back to them. Yeah. Now, why mine came back to me having lunch that day, I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's, it, it, is, it is interesting how the hippocampus just goes like, nah, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll stop working for now, uh, which is and, also, you know, I tell I tell people when I was drinking and that, that part mm-hmm. of your brain, it's like mm-hmm. oh, I don't really remember what happened the night before. It's like you also don't mm-hmm. remember the consequences of your behaviour so you don't yeah. actually learn. It's why, you know, your mate who thinks it's hilarious to jump on the pool table and whip his dick out into a helicopter
1: mm-hmm. yeah.
0: is still doing it, 42, because he yeah. never has dealt, like can't, Deal like, yes, he remembers getting kicked out of the pub, but he doesn't remember the no. the the everyone else looking at him and the the feeling in his body of I've done something stupid, yeah. and suddenly well, he's he like, why is,
1: Why feels isn't this shine.
0: this was funny when we were eighteen? Why isn't it funny now? Because so yeah, it isn't, Duncan. Well, no. No. You know, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> you know, it's why that yeah. behaviour keeps happening because you've never yeah. put the behaviour and the consequence together because your yeah. brain just misses out, and so yeah. People say, uh, like, I'm thir- I'm literally 13. I was 36 years old with the m- emotional maturity of a 14, 15 year old because that's about when I stopped kind of learning, and yeah. it was really hard when I got when I got sober. Was, I had to learn a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean, we say that, don't they? When we yeah. start to use the alcohol, the substance, or the behaviour, or a combination of all, mm. at a certain age, we stop growing up emotionally. Yeah, because we never ever work through anything consciously. And aware and awake emotionally, we use some sort of substance to numb it. Yeah. So, of course, you get to into recovery at 36, going, Well, I'm actually about the emotional age of a 14 year old. Yeah. It's hard, isn't
0: it? Yeah. And yeah, th- th- through tantrums like a toddler. And yes. I, I do, yeah. And look, I'm not going to lie, Diane, they still show up every now and again. And then when they Locks. do, I'm like, Oh, God damn it. Yeah, you know, but I bet
1: you reel it in quicker now,
0: Osha. I do my best. I do yeah. my best.
1: And
0: yeah. the, you know, I'm grateful to be uh, able to talk publicly about sobriety. I never yes. heard people talk about sobriety no. when I was growing up in Australia. I never saw particular, I never saw sober men uh, no. talk about having an un like a not a positive experience with alcohol uh, or people who had a not positive experience with alcohol and were thriving because of their abstinence i never mm-hmm. saw that mm-hmm. uh, so i'm grateful to be putting those kind of conversations into the world mm-hmm. the side effect of that is that people yeah. will come to me and go oh my mate or more now because i'm nearly 50 um, my my oh, kid you know? yeah yeah oh my yeah.
1: god you don't look 50 also. I'm not a natural blonde. Okay. Right. Right. right.
0: Okay. I was like, if I'm going to go gray, I'll do it on (laughs) my own terms. Let's go. Uh, So, well, I'm sober and I'm vegan. I cheat, you know? Yes. Uh, Sure. So, but people will come to me and that, you know, it's often about their kid sometimes. And, you know, because of my age, it's people who are like 16, 17, sometimes up to the early twenties. And, it is very, very difficult because they'll come and talk to me and, and say, "Look, we'll, you know, we've already sent them yes. to somewhere, and yeah. you know, it was ninety grand or it was sixty grand or something wow. to send this person to an intensive rehab, and you know, and then they're back using and." Again, and it's it's you know I get it. I get why a parent would do that. Why a parent would do everything to take their kid and fly them to Bali, throw them into a you know a a retreat, Four Seasons, yeah, yeah. Give them you know Mm. give them thirty days and think that's going to fix it. Mm. Why is it that that doesn't work?
1: There's two answers, I guess. The first one is you know as well as I do that until the addict is motivated, or the alcoholic's motivated to get well, not going, not a lot's going to change. But what I will say, the fa- it's a family disease. It's all very well for all parents, and I mean I and I know many of them are extremely well-meaning. Um, you know, we need to get him into recovery. He needs to stop. Da 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 da. It's all about him. But what we do, certainly at South Pacific, is you know, they do the three-week program and we say to the client, would you be open to doing family program? Now, that's a four-day intensive program with the family in the room and other families. And you learn how to communicate. You learn how to share the reality of what it's been like to be in relationship with you in your addiction, what the family's experience, what the addict's experience is like with the family, you know, on them all the time about recovery, recovery, recovery. A lot of what we do is pretty amazing, but I think the two that stand out for me are the Changes Program, which is the childhood trauma. Uh, We're starting to roll out sex addiction now too. Um, And also the the family program, because I think if the family are speaking the same language as the addict who's trying to get well, they've got a better chance of moving into recovery. The other thing I would always say, and I often say this to clients of mine privately, my private clients, is... um, you know, have a look at Al-Anon. In fact, I had a man in the other day and I said, have you been to al He said, no. I said, look, do yourself a favour. Here's two meetings that are reasonable. Do six of them. Make a decision about whether it'll help. Because you know and I know when we're working with a family, the non-alcoholic person, if I can call on that, or the non-addicted person, who's in relationship with the alcoholic or addict, both, both, same, same, there's a hook in it. And often the non-alcoholic person's history is the very reason they will pick someone like us. It's, a, it's not just happenstance that they end up in a relationship with someone who's an addict or an alcoholic. It's actually about how they've been raised. Mm. They often, you know, in Al-Anon, for example, which is for family and friends of alcoholics and addicts, they'll often say that they suffer with the disease of control. No no, guess the why that is. Uh, and whereas with the addict now, we're talking about the disease of self obsession. Mm. Do you know? So I think there's a hook for both. Yeah. And I understand, but I do think if they can get into some sort of family program or family therapy, I think it would, it, it helps because they start to work in the same, with the same language.
0: My man, David, would talk about those initial interviews with clients yeah. when when you are speaking to someone who maybe begrudgingly has shown up yes. uh, whether it be the the son or daughter or husband or wife what are some things that you talk to them about on their first day there to help them maybe get over the resentment of i don't belong here this is bullshit i'll do these 30 days and i'll be back at the pokies like or whatever, whatever it is. What are some ways that you can have those conversations to start to, you know, open their eyes a little bit or at least show them where they might be?
1: Well, we talk, we talk a lot about addiction and what it looks like and how it shows up. Uh, we also talk about childhood trauma and trauma particularly because we, we do both. Yeah. Um, there would be very few addicts and alcoholics, in my experience, that have not experienced some sort of childhood trauma. But... What I will say is that not everybody who has experienced childhood trauma ends up an alcoholic and addict. Two separate diseases, two separate covers, right? Yeah. And that's often a surprise to people. Once the addicts um, alcoholics detoxed and they're in the, the milieu of, oh, my God, I'm sitting in a psych hospital, which is not, just for those who are listening who don't know anything about it, it's not like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, just in case you remember that film. Uh, but it's a very very caring environment, Um, they they actually start to connect with other people. Now, I think, you know, coming back to my point about disease of isolation and loneliness and despair, they're often sitting in a room for the first time with people who have the same addictions that they have. Yeah. So in a sense, it normalises it and it starts to take some of the shame away from what they've done. In our groups, they'll talk about they'll all do a first step on whatever the thing they came in for and they'll also do a timeline and often for people who've never done any sort of work on themselves it's the first time of actually looking at the naught to 20 first year 20 years of their life this is what happened to me you know this is my experience and then they do a first step on whatever their issue is. And the interesting thing is I will say to comments, and I said it Monday, some of you will have come here, say, with alcohol problems, but after you've been here a week or a bit, you've now got a list this of this long of what's wrong with you, you know? So let's just deal with the one that's going to kill you first, right? Because we'll sort the rest out. Yep. Can we not get too sort of con, uh, complex about what's wrong with us, you know?
0: I used to sit on the board at Sain Australia which is a, a, oh, a, chari- yeah, yeah, yeah. a yeah a charity that um, yeah. helps people living with complex mental illness. <laughs> it was one of our, one of the big things we did was to combat that that view of what psychiatry or you know in inpatient in treatment Looks like. Look, I understand why people who write TV and film dramas go for that trope because Mm -hmm. it's an easy thing to make look scary, Mm -hmm. but it really isn't. And the actual number of people in our community who are that level of of sick and require Mm. that level of, um, protection from themselves Mm. and from Mm. society Mm. is, is infinitesimal compared to, you know, the actual number of people who are actually violent is so, so, so small. Mm. It makes the news, but it doesn't mean that every person that does that makes the news. Like today in Australia, probably 5 million people will drive home safely. Yes. And that'll never make the news. One no. person might have a fatal car accident and that's the one we see. Therefore, Absolutely. driving home is deadly. Yes. It isn't. We all know Man. that. Yeah. And I'd say the same ratio exists. And it's mm. it's a real shame because it might that sort of thing, I think, might keep people away from the idea of, well, I have to go be an inpatient at a psych hospital? No, I don't mm. want that. Because mm. I get that. When I was first offered meds, I didn't mm. want the meds, Diane, because I didn't want to be the person that needed meds. Yes. All right. I am, yep. and I was, yep. but I didn't want yep. to be that. And I'm sure no. there are people who be like, I don't want to go to that place because I don't want to be yeah. the person that needs to go to that place. How do you no. deal with? How do you deal with people in
1: that situation? Generally, they get so unwell that they'll, they'll stop worrying about what everybody else thinks. I mean, that's in this <laughs> in the realm of you know I'm worried about what the neighbours think. Like, who cares? I had a client who was a, a very uh, you know corporate. He said I can't take three weeks out, and God knows if my work colleagues, partners, whatever, found out I was going. You know, I said, all right, well. Make up a story. I don't care what you do, right? Lie,
2: Hmm.
1: really. Anyway, he did come in and he has done a significant amount of work and he's turned his life around, but I think he made up a story that he went out in sort of the middle of Australia camping with his father or something and, uh, you know, there was no internet connection. Okay, fine. They bought it. Okay. And it's
0: all it needs, yeah.
1: Yeah, but it's very hard. And, you know, often, you know, there will be clients who arrive who've had – you know, a little bit of pressure from the family to get in here and we'll know whether they'll be flagged as, you know, kind of flight risks, if you will. We'll spend a bit of time sort of trying to settle them in, introduce them to other people, show them the lie of the land. And once they find out that, you know, people don't have five heads and they're everybody's yeah. just, there's other people here trying to navigate this too. I mean, it's a big step. Yeah. Gosh, it you is. know that yeah. it's a really big step to go. You know, I can't keep doing what I'm doing to myself and to people in my life. And we're asking people at their most vulnerable to make the most significant decision of their life. That is, am I going to continue this or am I going to try and get into recovery and change it? When nobody has any idea, you had no idea what your life was going to look like when you got well. No. And I can remember this story. I told this story the other day a little boy and his mother went to the doctor and she couldn't get someone to look after the little boy. And um, it was a serious uh, discussion. She had to have the doctor with her about something with her health. And the doctor looked at the little boy and thought, oh, this is not going to go well because he was little, you know, five, six, something like that, and likely to need a bit of attention, right? And he wanted to focus on the woman. So he got a copy of the National Geographic magazine. He ripped out a picture of the world you know, map of the world, and he ripped it up into little pieces and he gave it to the boy and he said, here we are, here's all these little pieces, and they he was on the floor just over in the, another section of the room, and he said, can you see if you can put this together, this picture of the world? And he went, yeah, 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 I can do that, I can do that. And the doctor thought, oh, he'll be, he'll be there for half an hour, I've got plenty of time with the mother, right? And within about 15 minutes... And and he'd given the boy some sticky tape to stick it together, right? So the kid, you know, within about 15 minutes, the kid came over and he gave him this duck thing, the the piece of paper, with the world thing. And the doctor said, and the mother he looked at the mother and he said to the boy, How did you do that? That's amazing. You did that so quickly. And the little boy turned it over and he said, I put them, there was a photo of the face of a man on the other side. He said, I put the man back together and he said the world looked all right. Ah, And Ah. I thought, that's what we're doing. We're not focusing on what have you done and what has everybody else done to me, but how, what do I need to do for myself? And then my lens changes.
0: Yeah. That's astounding. What a great story. That's such a great story. Do you like that story? I do. Look, I really do. I Mm. really do because it is the thing that we can control. It is yes. that I can I can only control what I've you know
1: yeah you know
0: I got I got to c- talk quite early is like really how much energy are you going to waste <laughs> being upset about about that particular d- decision in your industry
1: yes
2: you think
0: how much you f- how you feel about it's going to change anybody's mind at any yeah. network ever no no,
1: no.
0: you're going to have to change how you feel about it and then mm. what's happening becomes different because that's mm. something that I I can control mm. what when. How, how do we have the conversation with someone that we care about? How does it even begin? Because it won't be the first time we've brought up something like, oh, the amount of time you're spending on the pokies or the amount of money we're losing on the on the on the betting apps, or you mm. know we don't need another handbag or you know <laughs> please, i like I appreciate that porn's important to you, but like come on, I wouldn't mind having sex with you one day, uh, or you know, like you know chateau de cardboard every night let's Let's get away from that. It's not the first time no. that you would have spoken to this person about it. So when we're speaking with someone yeah. that we care about mm. about the idea of an inpatient rehab mm. facility or a treatment facility, mm. what, what, is, what are some things that don't work? Let's start there. What's, what doesn't work?
1: Uh, well, anything accusatory never works, that's for sure. Anything where we're blaming them for what's happening to, in their lives and therefore ours, yeah when we're talking to a partner, uh, if and it probably depends where the relationship is, but if it's a bit strained, you know if we're at that point where we've got one foot out the door because we're sick of it, we've said it, I would always suggest to the partner that they get uh, best you know say it's a husband and wife just for the sake of easy discussion. Let's say the husband's got the problem, the wife's trying to get him to get help. I would find a husband's very close friend. I would talk to him about it and I would get him to come over. So that was a third party in the discussion and, and provided, and I would have up my sleeve the number of a couple of therapists or, you know, a couple of, you know, facilities like South Pacific and I would actually sit him down and say, okay, now we're really concerned. And usually what you have to do is do it at the time when they're likely to be sober. Yeah. So it might be an early morning intervention. And I would always couch it in the terms of, I'm, you know, we are concerned. I am concerned for you. Uh, what I've noticed is the escalation of how much you're drinking, how much you're not available to the children, whatever it is. And I want to ask you to get some help. And I'm happy to go and get help with you if you want to do some couples stuff or family therapy. But I've also got the names here of people that might be able to help you. Now, sometimes I'll go and see an individual therapist first rather than, you know, immediately pick up and talk to the intake people. Uh, the other thing we have, the advantage we have is on our website, we have self-assessments. So you can ah. do free self-assessments. They're anonymous. Yeah. Just fill in a few answers. That's often helpful because you're asking someone to come out of denial,
0: that can certainly come up in those conversations that, mm. and that though, that can be almost impenetrable. It doesn't mm, matter mm. who's in the room, Mm-mm. you know, because I and I know this because I've, I don't know, what are you talking, I've got to stop whenever I want. I'm, yes. I don't drink like, no, no you're, you're, right. this is not a problem. This is, yes. you, I'm not that guy, you know, forget about yeah. it. You're
1: full of it. And know. then I would say, okay, well, if you can stop. I'm going to ask you, so how long do you think you can stop for? And you give me some, you know, ridiculous thing, a week, two weeks, (laughs) a month or something. And I'd say, okay, so let's, I mean, I did this with a client who was continuing to drink and I wanted him to come in here and he wouldn't come in here because his father had been in here. And I said to him, okay, you think you can stop drinking. I want you to stop drinking. I want you to go to AA and if you drink again, Having done those two things and continuing to see me, if you want to do that, you don't, if you drink again, you have to go into South Pacific. Do you, will you agree on that basis? And he said yes. He said before four years. Wow. Because he was so not, he did not want to come in here on principle. Whatever you know? works,
0: mate. Whatever yeah, works. Yeah, that's right.
1: So, and I, works. I had, and I had another client, and he, he had been in recovery, he'd been in here and he'd gone, gone back out. He was a nice user. That very, very delusional, poor love. And his mother was ringing me. And I try not to do this, but she was so desperate. She was so desperate. I said, all right, bring the whole family. So her, the father, him and his brother, he agreed to come. And I saw them three or four times and just held the family together till he could get back in. But the agreement was you have to go back in and then you have to do long term. And he agreed to it. and He's in long-term now. Wow. So, you know, sometimes the family can play a really significant role because if they know that they can't manage things on their own and they're going to be turfed out of home, they will take some action.
0: Just a moment away from Diane Young to say that if this show is interesting to you, uh, the way that you can repay that value that we're giving you today uh, is by sharing this show with a friend or someone you care about, telling someone, copy-pasting the link, text it to somebody, post it to someone, email it somewhere, put it on your socials. That's a huge way to support us here. If the show does bring you value, rating and reviewing this show wherever you can is another way to help more people get more out of this show. The kind of help that you've got out of this show, if you have gotten help out of the show, and I know a lot of people have, I get emails all the time. If you'd like to share that and have other people experiencing what you're experiencing, please do share the show. We have, you know, We all have our weekly podcast listens, all right? And to become a regular listener of yours is a really great honor. And I I hope that you can share that goodness that you get out of the show with others in your life. We're back in a moment with Diane Young.
1: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care.
0: The self-assessment on the website is interesting because uh, you know it's it's old now. I'm, I'm, it's been that long, but I remember I had a I, I got a pamphlet. Uh, oh, a pamphlet. I got a, I got a pamphlet and yes. it, it was like 127 questions <laughs> of like. You know, it's an old kind of thing. Yes. Uh, it's like 127. I oh, think it's quite a famous pamphlet. It's like 127 yes. questions to mm. you know, if you've got think you got a problem. When I was like, oh, this is bullshit. Anyway, I, I ticked yes to 115. I was like, oh, ah, yeah. okay, because it said if if you tick yes to three or more, I was like, oh <laughs> shit. <laughs> like, like,
1: and the ones you didn't tick were things like, have you ever been pregnant? No. Uh,
0: oh yeah, you know, <laughs> being arrested and like, but for the grace of whatever higher power yes. looks after anyone, yeah. no. Yeah, um, but you know, only because like uh, you know, the mm. cop was looking over there at the time, and it's not because right. I was particularly good at doing anything. It was like yeah. I was well, really lucky.
1: The, you ducked up the laneway just I in was, time and didn't dude, get seen.
0: Yeah, tell tell me about um, and you know, we spoke about my you know my folks. Like, uh, what's what is it? What do we know about uh, you know how I have a the a combination of my father and mother's face. -hmm. You know, and my my son has a copy, you know, combination of his father and mother's face. Yeah. What about our brains? What about the insides of our heads? Uh, What about whatever trauma our parents might have been through? What are the chances of that trauma just being a part of the wiring of how we come out?
1: Well, I'm a big believer in that the in intergenerational trauma. In fact, I've work with it pretty much every day in some form. But I do know that you know certainly in your your and my great grandparents, grandparents' parents' time, am I, I don't know entirely your history, but none of my none of my family ever got help for anything. Hmm. It was like lock and load, you know what's going on, you know we're just trying to get through it. You know, my mother was a chronic alcoholic and my father was a gambler. I mean, you know, I was the only kid. It was like (laughs) I wasn't going to survive very well if I didn't actually do it myself, you know. So I do think that intergenerationally it does get passed down because nobody, no one in those generations had an opportunity to unpack anything or even look at it. I mean, the classic Australian way was she'll be right, mate, you know, and there's certain sections of the community that still think like that surprisingly so we now know that intergenerational trauma is passed on Uh, we we would automatically for example with the holocaust know that people who are survivors of the holocaust who then had children it's well documented that those children carry a lot of the burden from the from the holocaust nobody disputes that but when it's never been talked about i couldn't tell you anything about my great-grandparents grandparents and very little about my parents life either I didn't hear a story. You know how some families grow up and the, they tell the stories of the family? I don't know if your family told stories, but mine told none. So there was a massive uh, amount of secrecy in my yeah. family, you know? Yeah. So I I believe that I, it was passed down yeah. and the, and that, that I was the recipient. Of, now, one of the things I'll say to you about this, I'll is this. When I got into recovery, I wasn't quite aware of trauma back then. It was a long time ago. I'm now very aware of it and I've had to do a lot of therapeutic work on my own history. And I did it when I had a child and I was widowed when she was little, which was very unfortunate and terribly sad. But it was like all of the work I've done, it's like if I turn around and look at my past, all of it's still there. Not a day of it is ever going to change. It's it's cast in stone, right? But when I actually turned around, unpacked it, looked at it, had my feeling around it, processed it in the way I could therapeutically. It was like I turned back to my recovery and I put my hands out like this. You probably can't see. I put my hands out like this so that that doesn't come onto my child and my grandchildren. They will have their own stuff, but they won't be dealing with that. So I'm a big believer in unpacking the past and looking at it, not to blame. And I look, I did never think for a minute in my life that I would forgive my mother. I don't like the word forgive, except who she was. There you are. I, I never, you know, I, it was like she was my nemesis, right? But through the work I had to do unpacking that, I did get to a point where it's like, she was a good woman. She had a chronic alcoholic. She had no support and terrible childhood herself. I understand where it all came from. I'll tell you this story. My daughter came home from prim- the last day of primary school. She went to Montessori. She gets in the car in the f- first day of the last year. How's your day, darling? Good. Driving home. So what's happening? She said, Mum, we're going to do a project this year. It's great. I said, fabulous. What's the project, darling? Now, mind you, my daughter knows nothing about my history at this point, right? She's 11, going on 12, driving on. She said, we have to do an autobiography of the family, Ma. It's going to be great. I thought, oh, no. Like, internally, I went, oh, no. Yeah. And then I'm driving going, well, oh, fabulous, thinking to myself, how can I lie my way through this? <laughs> now, I won't go to the long story. We unpacked a little, you won't remember this, there used to be photos and they had little white borders around them. That was how photos were developed. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Don't you worry. You do? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I dragged out little, you know, pictures and I got them scanned and, you know, I was in publishing. So we wrote a story about each person. I lied through a lot of it, right? I had to, right? After she got a great mark, everybody loved it, everyone cried when they read it and all that stuff, blah, blah, blah. Took all year. And I had all these photos. Now, the only photos I had in my home were of myself, my daughter, Thea, and her late father, Nick. And I thought, perhaps it's time I put some of these photos up. A oh, long time in recovery, Osha. So I took the little photos up to the Balmain, I live in Bauman to the Balmain framer who's not there anymore. And I would say, could you make them a little bit big and put a frame on them? And of course, within the first five minutes of me standing there, I'd start to cry. And every time I go up with another thing I found my father's war medals and got them you know so it's so it was like 20 things 20 things something. but every time I take a couple more up he just he put the tissue box on the top of the thing right because he uh. knows it's crap Now I live in a terrace they are all up the wall yeah and there was something about that process of allowing those people who didn't do a very good job for me really but on the other hand I could say to you Asha, made me the woman I am today yeah They're up on the wall. Now, I would never have had that experience had I not had the child and had I not done the work to do this. So, you know, all of it is process. It's all the process. We don't do three weeks, get into recovery, and it's a done deal. We are work in progress and a masterpiece at the same time, Osha.
0: Without a shadow of a doubt, you know. <laughs> yeah. Without without a shadow of a doubt. You know, I was thinking I was I had I actually had my psychiatrist on the pod the other day where we mm-hmm. he's um a astonishingly clever man, um, yeah. Doctor Dr. Adam Bays. He's uh, uh, one of the. He's leading the research into psilocybin and treatment of. Uh, oh um,
2: wow! Okay. Yeah. Uh, uh,
0: catastrophic uh, treatment of resistant depression is extraordinary yeah. human being. Fuck. him yeah. The worst because he was the guy I went and saw when I was really sick when I was on the antipsychotics and everything. Yes. Uh, I sat sat down in front of. I was like fuck, you're like 10 years younger than me. Shit. You know? <laughs> it was like the first doctor that I that I really, really needed but was younger than me. I was like, Jesus, yes. man. Anyway. Mm. But I was talking to him about the third law of thermodynamics applies to all of us. Entropy. Yes. Entropy never, ever, ever stops. Absolutely no. nothing in this world is the same as it was when I started that sentence. Nothing. Mm. Nothing. And the mm. idea that, ah, oh, three weeks, I'm cured. Mm-hmm. Mm. More yeah. like, you know, you now have a, a brilliant new pair of shoes and mm. you've got a new way to walk, but the old way to walk will pop up from time to time. It's cool. You know the new way, which is mm. far better for everybody. Let's go. Just keeping an eye on that. You know, and it's, it's always tough. We talked about people going out, as, uh, as is said, in um, 12 step programs. Yeah. Success in, you know, addiction recovery What what does it look like?
1: It's very hard to quantify, isn't it, because we don't keep records of people who come in and go out. I mean, Mm. if I look at my own world and I, you know, got sober in Sydney and clean in Sydney, there's a lot of my compatriots that are still alive, well and doing amazing things with their lives, you know, and there's many who aren't with us anymore but who died sober. There is a revolving door in, you know, people that come in, stay for a while and go. The other thing, I I, it's probably worth mentioning, and and I only because it's front of of mind. I've got a couple of clients who've got quite a lot of recovery, and I'm talking ten plus years, uh, who have never who who came into recovery, maybe through here, maybe through a detox, and after a period of time, they started to realise that even with all the work they'd done in twelve step recovery, they needed more. And uh, a couple of them, one of them's actually come back into South Pacific to do some trauma work, just to do a nine-day trauma program, uh, because he knows that that is still impacting and holding him back. I think the key to recovery is to stay always wondering about how you might do life differently or better, how you might live tomorrow better than you live today, And I don't think it's impossible, unless you've got serious, serious, serious mental illness, I don't think it's impossible for anyone to change anything if they really want to. Because like you, I'm sure, Osha, I've seen remarkable things happen in people's lives, and remarkable things have happened in my own.
0: Yeah.
1: And remarkable things sound like they've happened in yours. I mean, did you ever think you were going to be married and have have two children?
0: (laughs) Well, that's the thing. You you talked about, uh, you know, you can't possibly see what life could look like without it. Like the life I have now is you could have told me about it when I was still drinking and you know, like mm-hmm. I last month and go, if you stop, this is what it's going to look like. I would mm. have said, you are M night Shyamalan. That is mm. a fucking fairy story. Mm. No mm. way mm. that'll ever happen. happen. Ever. Yeah. Ever. What, yeah. And like, I couldn't have even imagined the mm. life that this could happen, that it could be this way without drugs and alcohol in my life. Mm. And I'm not saying that, like t- to be some sort of evangelist i'm just just oh. this, it's the truth for me it's, you know yeah, it's it's um, your
1: it's your experience yeah. you know
0: I've, I've since come to you know i think a lot about the world and you know i've since come to you know question why why is it that you know our eldest she's 19 now you know and not that she does uh these things but it's, it's wild like her and her mates they don't really even drink that much it's incredible no. uh yeah. Thank God. You know, the festivals they go to, they're not allowed to get pills tested. It's like, hang on, I can walk across the street and for 10 bucks buy a a cask of wine, which has 30 drinks in it, which if I drink it in one sitting could easily kill me. Kill me. For 10 bucks. Mm. And that is completely legal. Mm. Yet I'm mm. not allowed to you know fuck off, you know mm. <laughs> Yeah, like no,
1: it... look i I'm, I'm with you, I mean, you have to actually work with the society in which you live, you know, and the way people yeah. it's this constant dragging to the the conservative, you know it's like, no, that's not how people live now, they don't do no. that
2: no yeah. so I, it,
1: yeah, I'm with you, keep them safe, yeah, that's always my view. It's like when the the injecting rooms first came out, mm. there was outrage about it. You know, yeah. people are using. Let them go and inject safely. Keep them alive. That, and that yeah. came out of a uh, older couple, a couple who would lost their daughter. You
0: know I what? I was just in Richmond. I stayed in Richmond for two weeks during the mm-hmm. um, uh, comedy festival when we were doing mm-hmm. our show down yeah. there. There was injecting yeah, yeah. injecting room five doors down. Yeah, you know, yeah. Th- th- there was no I, I no never drama. No, no drama at all. You no. know, and and just for people who you know, might be a bit worried about that sort of thing or might have a, you know, kind of idea about mm. that. You know, yeah. I think in Melbourne, on Melbourne Cup Day, I think they are going to change the law from Melbourne Cup Day, uh, public drunkenness as a crime. Now, oh, yeah. just the idea of decriminalising addiction, what, yeah. what happens when we criminalise addiction and what happens when we decriminalise addiction?
1: Well, when we criminalise it, we throw people in drunk tanks and lock them up, and when we decriminalise them, we get them help. Very simple, isn't it? And we give, you know, we navigate them to someone that can support them. You know, I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with having a few too many, and people do it with if they're not alcoholic and addicts. then more power to you, but for those of us that are we need the intervention, the earlier the intervention, the earlier we're likely to get help. And I don't mean, you know, a a sort of controlling mother navigating a son into South Pacific or something like that, but I do mean, you know, that that sort of conversation that we have with our kids. And I was telling someone the other day, you remember the show Neighbours? I used to, you know, and I was running a big job, so I'd make sure I was home. I think it started at 6.30 or whatever time. And so I'd make sure I was home and I was watching it with my daughter who was in primary school because they dealt with every contemporary issue in yeah. that. And so what I could do is I could open up the conversation with her about, what do you think about that girl getting involved with that boy that's being mean to her? What do you think about that? And so I could talk about them, yeah. not her. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And uh, always to have the conversation. What do you think? And the open-ended questions and stuff. And we learn that, don't we?
0: yeah. Yeah. In
1: recovery, you know, they have the open ended question What can it, I do to support you? Yeah. How can I help you? I'm concerned about you. What can I do? Yeah. You know, uh, ulti-
0: ultimately, you know, changing from a crime, criminal model of addiction to a, a help model of addiction that, that,
1: yeah. that yeah.
0: helps all of our community ultimately. It yeah. Could, and wasn't it know.
1: Portugal that decriminalized and suddenly yeah. everybody, at the, suddenly the the rate of usage went down and uh-huh. people got help? I mean, yeah. I just, yeah, I'm with you on
0: it that. It doesn't work well on the conservative end of politics when people want to thump a thing and talk about throw them mm-hmm. all in jail. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. mate. Right. Then you just get jails full of sick people who mm-hmm. are just going to get sicker. And mm-hmm. then in our community, we have a public health care system that's a, quite a burden on our society. Yeah, yeah, you know, absolutely. Just, and jails yeah. are expensive. Let's be honest. That's right. So yeah. It costs a lot of money to keep people in prison,
1: and if you don't know much about crime before you go in, you'll surely know a lot of it by, <laughs> by the time you come out. So really,
0: really excellent place to learn yeah. that sort of thing. Extraordinary. Mm-hmm. It,
1: it's it's a tricky thing,
0: and I, I, I'm happy to see that our our country's relationship to the conversation around addiction is shifting. I, I feel mm-hmm. that it is, and mm-hmm. I see it. Like I said, I see it in in you know my eldest and her mates. You know, I see the way they. Drink and it's nothing, nothing at all like how I did cool. at all. None cool. of the people in their cohort or their no. community drink like that. No, and, and these are kids of privilege, you know, mm. it's you know, part of the city we live in. We all work hard, that's how it happened. It's true, and it blows my mind that mm. that's how it's changing. And mm. it's 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 nice to see, but we still have a long long way to go because then other things show up as you mentioned gaming we talk about Mm. apps we talk about things like this and Mm. look i'm sure there's a whole other conversation about an upstream intervention because (laughs) um, for me the idea that oh it's your choice to drink that much the choice stopped being mine before my 18th birthday
2: absolutely
0: i it was not a choice and the same with the the gambling and the same with everything else Mm. i i I couldn't not choose to do it. Mm. I lost mm. the ability to do it. You think about mm-hmm. the kid at the daycare that your, your one goes to, the one that's always running into walls, you mm-hmm. know, the one that hasn't got any impulse control yet because that part mm-hmm. of their brain hasn't started working. It's that. Mm. Mm. I couldn't not do it.
1: No, that's right.
0: And it's hard for people to accept that. It's like, well, I can not drink. How can you not? What's wrong
1: with you? Yeah, I think it's understood. I, I think very within the community there is an understanding that there is some sense of it being a disease, you know, a disease of addiction. It's not a choice, you know. No. I do do think that's changing. And I do think podcasts like this and various other people like yourself who talk about it openly, uh, and, I mean, all of my life when I was in my publishing career I, you know, guarded my anonymity so tightly and I can't tell you when I got out of that and got into this, it's like I don't care now, you know. And I also had a daughter who was older so I didn't yeah. wasn't worried about any impact on her, but it's there's a freedom in just saying, "Well, this is who I am," you know, and oh, I'm okay with it.
0: Yeah, I yeah. as in as you've heard in this conversation, I am understandably vague about you know the ways that I stay sober, of course, but of I have no problem saying, "Well, I just stopped drinking." I, it's not even my line; it's Dave Hughes's line, because yes. uh, <laughs> he's the one that told me, because he hasn't had a drink in. Dave Hughes gave me a logie, and I don't remember it.
1: Oh wow! Off really.
0: Off my face on Percocet and Crown Liger. No. Yes, on live national television. There's
1: a photo to prove that you got it. You were there.
0: In a lovely suit, let me tell you. Wow, yes, No I'm memory sure. of it all. And yeah. I asked him, I said, why did you stop drinking? He said, because I was a terrible alcoholic. Yeah, God. And no. I, I, I I, I, don't know if he said I was, but I just simply said when people say, how come you don't drink? I say, because I'm a terrible alcoholic.
2: It's yeah. the worst.
0: It's awful. Yeah. And as soon yeah. as I say that, they go, oh, and they back right off. Yeah, that's you right. know, and I'm f- I'm happy to have that conversation. I have of no course. problem at all opening no. the batting with that, and because no. people just leave me the fuck alone.
1: <laughs> they yeah, well, I do off. leave you alone. It's very yeah. true. Yeah.
0: And when I was like, okay, <laughs> by the time everyone's had their fourth drink and they're starting to tell me the same thing they told me a minute ago, forgetting that they've just told it to me, I'm like, okay, look, I, I, mm. I've I've got another episode of rabbit hole, so I'm going to go home now. Got- <laughs> 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 uh, they're lucky if I say goodbye. To be honest. <laughs>
1: I'll yeah, just, no, I get it. I totally, I'll I just totally vanish. get vanish.
0: You know, I'll just vanish. Yeah. Um, I, I'm just so grateful that you're in the world, honestly, Diane. And, and grateful the work you do and grateful right. that, you know, a place like, South Pacific private. And, you know, it's not the only place in Australia like that. No, um, but I'm grateful yeah. that places like that exist, places with integrity, places yeah. that, yeah. cl- you know, clearly understand you're dealing with very, very vulnerable people and very vulnerable mm. families who will do anything and pay any amount of money to yeah. save, literally save the life of, mm. of someone they mm. dearly, dearly love. <laughs> and, um, you know, like I said, you know, the person I met that came out of there, I was astounded Mm. the before and after. Um, I'm not saying that happens every time, um, but it was a particularly complicated situation. And that, yeah, well, yes. Mm. And that's, that's the other thing is like Mm. to have the idea of like, Oh, they wouldn't know how to deal with me. It's like, mate, you got tickets on yourself if you think you're the worst they've ever seen. I can promise you that.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's right. You're not like, that special and different, my friend.
0: <laughs> don't forget, in the John Birmingham book, um, died with a falafel in his hand, there was a bloke that shot up Vegemite, and that's a true story. Yes. <laughs> you know, people <laughs> look, will do wild shit.
1: They do. And I think that, you know, the often the great – I was over at the Meadows doing some training in Phoenix, Arizona, and I was working with a bunch of therapists over there, and uh, they were – one of the women was going to go in and do the program, their intake. And this is in 2019 before COVID.
2: Yeah.
1: And I said to her, oh, that's interesting. I said, so what, what would be the cost to come in and do that in the Meadows in America? Oh, my God. Yeah. And at that point, she said, and this is 2019, so it'd be a whole lot more now. Oh, She said it was going to be, I think it was a three or four-week program. I'm guessing three because South Pacific's model on the Meadows, same program. Yeah. She said 60000 US dollars. Yep. Now, if yeah. you've got private health insurance and you've got psychiatric cover, you pay your excess, you come in. Um, we are blessed beyond measure if we can have that, if we're privileged enough to have our private health insurance. Yeah. And I do know that there's a number of clients of mine who don't have private health insurance who will actually say to me, what will I do? And I say, I don't know, ring one of them and ask them because sometimes in the life of a the policy they'll forgive, you know, they'll actually forgive the uh, waiting period and they'll get you in if you're, you know, really in dire need. Yeah. So there are places available that can help people. And there's I think ways. we're very blessed in yeah. Australia. There's, mm. there's,
0: there's ways to get help and, yeah. and the, the help is there and you'd be amazed how much better you feel once you start actually seeking help. That, yes. in, its, that in itself yes. can op- open up that window. And I hate, I'm i not going to use this word lightly, but that opens up the window of hope that it might not always yeah. be this way.
1: Yeah, hope. Hearing other people's experience. That's what starts to set us free. Usher, there you go. You can use that again if you like.
0: They suck because they <laughs> they rhyme or they make a cute acronym uh, and it makes it the worst, but it's the worst because it's true. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. So true. That was psychologist Diane Young. You can find out more about the work that she and her colleagues do and the treatments that are available and the programs that are available at southpacificprivate.com.au, which is also where that online self-assessment tool is. It's, it's really quite interesting. Just just have a look, you know, it's either with you in mind or someone that you care about or maybe someone from your past. You can, you know, maybe an ex or whatever, for example, you can go back and have a bit of a look just to, you know, give yourself a different perspective. It's interesting talking about that because I don't really often get a chance to speak about sobriety much on this show, but I'd like to, i actually like to do it a bit more, to be honest. What was it? Another thing we didn't really talk about, but when I first got sober, I needed a sober hero, someone that I could look up to, someone that I could see that was the embodiment, that there was possibility where I just once had despair. And so at the time, bear in mind, it was 2010. So at the time it was, it was really only one option, truly. It was Iron Man. It was Robert Downey Jr. Because that was only just when he had returned. okay? Because the Robert Downey Jr. that I had grown up with was the Robert Downey Jr. who at one point he was pulled over by the cops on Sunset Boulevard. He was speeding in his Porsche. They pull him over and they discover, oh, he's naked and he's hallucinating. And he's throwing imaginary rats at the cops that are pulling him over. He was that high. This guy, he couldn't get work anywhere. He was clearly, you can see it, he's clearly one of the most talented and gifted actors of a generation. But his addictions made his entire life and anyone that came close to his orbit just complete wreckage. That man, that man got better. So much better. He became Iron Man. It really helped to read stories that he spoke about. It really helped for me to see what he could achieve and he had achieved. And I always appreciated, there's one particular thing he talked about when he spoke about addiction because I had a great amount of shame at the time. And he wrote that addiction is not a disgrace. It's a disease that can happen to anyone and it's nothing to be ashamed of. And that really helped me, um, be open about it and speak about it and understand that the less internalized shame that I had about it, the better. And, you know, the more work I put into it, the, the, the better possibilities I would have in front of me. And, um, yeah, that's kind of what I've been doing ever since. Yeah. There's treatment. There's treatment for addiction. It could be, you could walk into a sobriety fellowship, a psychologist's office, your GP, you could walk into a treatment center like South Pacific private. It doesn't matter. Just know the treatment's available and that life can and does get a whole lot better when you take that treatment seriously. Thank you so much for letting me do a solid episode on recovery today. I'd love to know what you thought about it. Send us your email at gmail.com. If this episode has helped you or you think it might help someone in your life, please do share it. And come say hey at the live shows. We're doing these live shows May 19th in Sydney, June the 3rd in Newcastle. Now I know Sydney's a bit too far for some people up north of the city to travel to, but if you're anywhere near Newcastle, make a day of it we're on at five thirty in the afternoon luke heggie's on the same day so newcastle it's a big day at the newcastle comedy festival so you come see a couple of shows mid-flight brawl one of my other favorite podcasts ever is on right before us so come along come check out the boys it'll be rad to have you there big thanks to everyone that helped me make the show today Bree Steele, andy mar on uh, audio and video post-production toe Hyder on music rachel barrett my executive producer and you for listening really appreciate it have a fantastic day i'll see you wednesday